Thank you, Ellie. Um, y'all, it's crazy. William with RUF uh, Missions, he was in my freshman Bible study when I was a junior in college. And just a little, uh, just to expose him a little bit, um, we went to Alabama. I think most of y'all know that. But he just looked at my pullover that I have tonight. He was like, Ole Miss has the coolest stuff, man. So jealous. Um, but anyway, welcome to RUF. Uh, I'm Austin. I'm the campus minister. We're just glad y'all are here, like that anybody would take the time out of their social schedule, out of their weeks, out of their books. Uh, It's just a privilege for us. So we hope that you come here and are able to rest. And the reason we think that you're able to rest is because Jesus has good news for us. And the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is what we've been looking at this entire time in the book of Galatians as as we've been working our way through. And if you've been paying attention, like... To be honest with you, we haven't had much variation in what we've been talking about. We've been hammering home that you are not justified by your works, by your performance, meaning you're not made right with God. God doesn't approve of you based on how great you are, but that he relates to you according to his grace, according to his mercy. That's what Paul's been hammering home, and he'll keep doing that all the way through chapter 4. But there's a story about uh, the, the great Protestant reformer Martin Luther where somebody asked him, why do you just preach about grace? Why do you preach about the gospel every week? When are we going to graduate from this? And Martin Luther's response was, my people need the gospel every day because they forget it every day. Meaning, if we're not actually internalizing this, if we keep going back to our performance, which is our natural state, which is what we all do by default, then what we need is not rules and laws. What we need is more grace. 
And that's what Paul is going to give us tonight in Galatians 3, 1 through 14. But before we dive into that text, I want to tell a story. And it's a story I stole from this pastor in Birmingham, Martin Wagner. Um, but he tells the story about in 1859, a French tightroper named Henry Blondin made news by crossing Niagara Falls on a two-inch tightrope, 13 feet long, over an active and crazy waterfall. And the thing about Blondin is that when he did this, he wasn't satisfied with just succeeding once, which he did succeed. I'm not going to tell you a story about his death or anything. But he wasn't satisfied, and he wanted to keep doing it in, like, harder ways. So there's one story where he lays down across the middle of the rope in the very middle of it. Um, There's another time where he crossed it blindfolded. There's one time he took a wheelbarrow across it. The fan favorite, supposedly, was when he took a stove. Y'all, this is a real story. He took a stove out there and cooked an omelet in the middle of the rope over Niagara Falls. Um, But I think the craziest one, and the one for the sake of our story, is when one day he showed up and said, does anyone want to ride on my back as I cross this tightrope? This guy named Harry Calcord, Calcord, um, said, okay, I'll do it. So Calcord jumped on Blondin's back, and they started to make their way across. They made it. It's okay. Um, that's how the story ends. But imagine with me for a second that when they got into the middle of Niagara Falls, you know, 650 feet across the middle of the rope, Calcord said, you know what, Henry Blondin, I'm going to get off your back, and I think I can finish the rest of the way. I think I can make it on my own. You got me this far, but I think I have it in my own capabilities to finish. Now, you would almost assume that Henry Blondin would say, you're crazy. You're an idiot. We would be looking on from the crowd saying that is the most ridiculous thing. We know he can't finish that on his own. He's not a professional. But this hypothetical situation helps us understand what the real situation was like in this church in Galatia. What Paul is worried about, what he's speaking against in this whole book, is that these false teachers have snuck in and they said, the gospel really is about Jesus meeting you halfway, and then it's up to you and your performance to get to the finish. That you need to jump off the back of the gospel of grace and make your way the rest of the way. So Paul's going to combat that. He's going to encourage them to stay on the back of the gospel of grace three different ways. They all sound like the exact same point tonight. Grace from start to finish, grace from beginning to end, grace from first to last. So let's look at that first one, grace from start to finish. So just like in our hypothetical situation, when uh, Henry Blondin starts yelling at Harry Calcord to get back on his back, Paul begins his passage with these people about to leave the gospel of grace and go to performance by yelling at these people. Look at verse one. He says, you fools, who has bewitched you? You can almost feel, and I want y'all to feel, the emotional anger and angst that Paul is writing this with. Look in verse 2. He says, I'm going to ask you only this, meaning I'm going to ask you one question, and yet he proceeds in verse 2 through 5 to ask five different questions. They all come back to the same different point. It's almost like he's writing with just this crazy tirade of penship, and yet he says, I'll, I'll summarize the questions by reading two of them. He says, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now perfected by works of the law or by hearing with faith? What Paul is doing here by calling them to realize that it was the Holy Spirit, God's own person, that created in them salvation, that created in them justification, 
This age-old lie, he's combating that it's Jesus who gets us in to good standing with God, but it's up to us and our performance, our works to keep you in. That Jesus, yeah, loves you to an extent. He meets you halfway, but once he gets you in, you need to keep yourself in. Getting off or you know, staying in the gospel of grace means you've got to get off the back and walk the rest of the way. One pastor I was reading, it is really rare that I have two Martin Luther stories. I'm not like some big uh, Christian history guy. But anyway, one pastor I was reading told a story about uh, this guy, coolest name ever, Duke George of Saxony. Um, Duke George of Saxony one day was talking to Martin Luther, and he was complaining about how much Luther talks about grace. Uh, and Luther, or he, he says this to Luther. He says, look, justification, meaning right standing with God by grace through faith, is a great doctrine to die by, but a lousy one to live by. What Duke George of Saxony was saying was essentially, look, it's a really great comfort for us to believe in grace when we die, because that means we're secured, not based on our performance or our sin, but based on what Jesus has done. But it's a lousy one to live by, because if people start believing grace is how God relates to them, is what actually fuels us in the Christian life, then people are going to go crazy. They won't want to follow God. If they can get away with it, isn't grace just a get-out-of-jail-free card? Maybe you've heard this before. Maybe you've thought this before in your conscience, that really, if you want to be a Christian, what you really need is more discipline, more laws, more rules. And to be honest, uh, maybe this is your, the expression of Christianity that you've heard before. Uh, when I talk to students that really don't like Christianity, it usually has nothing to do with the cross. Like, they're like, Jesus dying for my sins sounds pretty awesome. Um, I don't think that's bad news. But what they see as bad news is oftentimes, whether explicitly or implicitly, the way that the gospel has been told to them was that Jesus meets you halfway. But if you want to be a real Christian, you got to get your act together. you got to start living by a bunch of rules. Basically, Jesus wants you to sign up for a military academy and have more discipline in your life. But I don't want y'all to miss what Paul is saying here because it's pretty radical. It's pretty against this idea that we have to get our act together. What Paul is saying is that becoming a Christian and living as a Christian have the exact same fuel source. That the gospel is about grace from start to finish. The way Paul says it in Philippians 1 verse 6, I think he says it a little more clear and better here. He says, he who began a good work in you will also see that work to completion. And my question for you tonight, as we think about this point, is what is shaping your view of the Christian life? I was in a counseling class one day, and uh, my counseling professor was talking about how a lot of times what our job is, is to actually get people to believe what the Bible says about God instead of what they implicitly think about God. He referenced God as our father is sometimes really hard for a lot of people to palate because a lot of people grew up, and maybe you grew up with really painful father situations. And he said that, you know, it's natural for those people that grew up in those bad father situations to just associate God being their father as being absent, being indifferent, being demanding. I think that instinct also goes with the Christian life too. Many of you, even if you were raised with good fathers and good homes, many of you were raised in communities or cultures where everything was conditional on your performance, where you couldn't have an off day, you couldn't be sad, you couldn't fail, you couldn't disappoint people, 
You always had to live up to expectations. And when Jesus looks at us and says, follow me, the way our brains are hardwired to think is following Jesus just means another way to perform. That God is just waiting for me to get my act together. And it's all on me to get this thing right. But really what scripture invites us to do is to not relate to God and the Christian life with our own, you know, with our own ideas of how that works based on our experience. What the Bible invites us to do is to actually have the courage to relate to God on the basis that he tells us to. And what the gospel says is that God is not a demanding parent asking you to live a life of performance. God is a loving father who wants to relate to you not only in your sin, but also in this whole life after you follow him through grace from start to finish. That the burden of your performance is not on you anymore. In Jesus, he's taken it upon himself. So that's Paul's first point. In verse six through nine, Paul wants to nuance this point in a little different way and combat this false teaching a different way. And he goes back to the Old Testament character of Abraham. So y'all hang with me. Um, Because with Abraham, we learn that grace was God's plan from beginning all the way to the end. Uh, For many of you, I don't know if you're going to be tracking with Paul here. You're like, what does Abraham have to do with any of this? Or maybe you're like me in college, genuinely, and you're like, I can't remember anything about Abraham besides that stupid song that we sang, like, Father Abraham. I debated whether I was going to, like, sing and legit do the whole thing, but, y'all, I'm not a a youth minister anymore, so you're not going to get that. Um, but if you remember, these, Jew- or these, these false teachers that were spreading a different gospel in the church in Galatia were Jewish. They were culturally Jewish. And the, the falsehood they were spreading was that if you wanted to be a legit Christian, if you needed to work your way into becoming culturally Jewish. You needed to be circumcised. You needed to follow all the customs and the festivals. You needed to eat kosher. And for Jews... The, Probably the most significant figure besides Jesus, if they were actually Christian Jews, was Abraham. Abraham was the prominent figure. If you want to read about Abraham, it would actually be a good Bible study. Genesis 12 through 25, that's his whole life. But the reason Abraham was so important was that Abraham was the patriarch, meaning he was the head of all of the Jewish family. He was the head of God's people. And with Abraham, it's God who made the promise that he was going to bless his people, that he was going to bless Abraham and his descendants, and through his descendants, he was going to bless the world. And there's this debate about Abraham. How was Abraham saved? And it's interesting to see in this passage the way Paul relates to Abraham. Paul, as you know, is, was born Jewish, um, and so he knows a lot about Abraham. And it's interesting to see that Paul doesn't say that Abraham's irrelevant. He's not, like, has, he, he actually does have something to do with the equation in Christianity, that, God of, that the God of Christianity in Jesus Christ is also the God that was of Abraham. But where Paul makes a sharp division with these people is that he basically says, I don't think you understand how God related to Abraham at all. What, this, what these Jewish teachers were saying was that we know that we need to be justified or we know that we need to live by performance because Abraham lived by performance. That's the way God called him righteous. That's the way that he got God's approval. If you go back to the story of Abraham, Paul even quotes it here in verse 6. Uh, Genesis fifteen six says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him or credited to him. Credited to him as righteousness. Um, 
the reason Paul points out Genesis 15 as Abraham being counted righteous in that moment was that Genesis 17, two chapters later, I was an accounting major, two chapters later, Genesis 17, was actually when Abraham was circumcised. Yeah, that's what happened. But anyway, that's when Abraham was circumcised. But Paul is saying, look, you're missing the order of things, and you're missing the whole point of how God wants to relate to us and Abraham. Genesis 15 was when he was declared righteous. Genesis 17 was his obedience. So if Abraham was justified, if Abraham was loved by God based on his obedience, wouldn't that that order be opposite? Wouldn't his obedience come before he's declared righteous? What Paul is basically saying is, look, you don't understand the story. The God from beginning of the story to the end of the story has always related to his people according to grace and simply by their faith. Trusting in the grace of God, trusting in the promise of God. And the way I want to apply that here is I actually think it's a great comfort to go back to Abraham in order to see our place in the story. Like if you actually look at Abraham's life, if you read it for yourself, there's really not much heroic things about Abraham. He's a spectacularly unheroic figure. I mean, he was living in a pagan country as a pagan before God called him. After God called him and promised him a child, he tries to shortcut God's promise by sleeping with another woman and having a child with her when God said specifically you're going to have a child with your wife. And the comfort I have with that and what I want you all to take home is that the Bible is not a book of heroes. The Bible is not a book of role models. The Bible is not a book of people that have it all together that we need to aspire to be. The Bible is a book of needy, broken, sinful people who simply need God's grace in order to be anything, in order to be sustained in this life. And this begs the question, what about you, your imperfections, your past, your failures, makes you think you're disqualified from God's love? Or maybe not that. What about your failures, your own habits, your inability to stop that thing? You think maybe that God may love you, but he can't use you. To make those assumptions is to fall victim to a word that is not the gospel. We all have that voice, that word of shame and condemnation in our hearts that's, complete, or that's continually speaking to us saying, you're useless, you're unlovable, you're worthless. And what God wants to do through the gospel is simply say, that's simply not true. Your worth, your value, your usefulness in my kingdom, it's not based on your giftedness, your ability to perform. The only thing you need to be useful and loved in my kingdom is your need, is your need. We remember the parable that Jesus told about the Pharisee and the tax collector. Um, It's the tax collector that walked away justified because his prayer, unlike the Pharisee who was like, God, you should love me. I'm so great. The tax collector is the one whose prayer just said, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus said that is the prayer that walks away justified, that walks away loved. So last point, grace from first to last. So we've seen that grace is from start to finish in this life. We've seen that from beginning to end, that's how God chooses to relate to his people. Lastly, grace from first to last. So the logical question you might be asking, the logical question I think you should ask is if grace is true, why does God give us the law? Why does God invite us to follow the law? It's a good question. 
We're actually going to talk more about that next week. But as we look at verse 10 through 14, we do see one reason that God gave us the law, and it wasn't so that we could be amazing, so that we could be superior. What the law does is it simply reveals how much we need God's grace. Look at verse 10. He quotes, uh, in verse 10, he quotes the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy 27. It says that anyone who tries to rely on their ability to follow the law is under a curse. Now, what does that mean? Um, I, was, I was reading this and I was like, why did God give us the law to curse us? And maybe uh, I don't want y'all to, in, maybe you're misinterpreting it. I don't want y'all to. Uh, so the reason that Paul said that the law is a curse is not because God is like some trickster. He doesn't give us the law as like a bait and switch and say like, oh, here, this is for your good. And now I'm going to curse you uh, because you tried to follow it. The law throughout the whole narrative of scripture is told to us as beautiful, good and true. Psalm 19, when it talks about the law, says that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. It's more valuable than gold. It's sweeter than honey. The reason that Paul says that the law is a curse to us is not that the law is the problem. It's not that God's plan and God's way for our life is the problem. The reason the law is a curse is because our own inability to follow it. It's an us problem. It's not a God problem. Think about it this way. Uh, To many of you, uh, it's very understandable, but to many of you, unrestricted access to the internet is a curse. It's a curse because you can't resist that urge to pornography. You can't be safe by yourself with it. Now, the question we need to ask is, is that a curse to you because your computer and the internet is bad? No. The the computer and the internet are good at at best and like passive at the very least. What's cursed about that situation is that we don't have the self-control. We don't have the sense of discipline in order to relate to those things in a healthy way. It's the same with the law. The curse of the law is that God's good, perfect, and holy way simply reveals the fact that we aren't as good as we think we are. It's the law that reveals how much I covet my neighbor's stuff. It's the law that reveals how prone I am to run to idols to comfort me instead of the Lord who I was made to be comforted by. The law is essentially, Paul says elsewhere, a huge mirror That otherwise we wouldn't know all our blemishes. Otherwise we wouldn't know all that food that we have in our teeth. And yet the law is this mirror that we hold up and we see all our imperfections. We see the food in our teeth, spiritually speaking. And Paul actually says that the law being a curse is good news. Now why is the law being a curse good news? In order to understand that, look at verse 13. He says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is anyone who is hanged on a tree. What Paul is saying here is that the law exposed us for who we really were, who we really are. And yet it also exposes God for who he really is. That when Jesus came to take on the responsibility of following the law perfectly, that's why it's important that Jesus lived a sinless life, because he was fulfilling the law perfectly. What he was doing was he was following it for us. He was accruing a perfect righteousness for us. And when he was hanged on the tree, as verse 13 says, when he was crucified, 
What Jesus was doing was he was taking your curse. He was taking your guilt. He was taking your shame. He was taking the debt that you owe to God. To be redeemed means that your debt was paid in full. Like, just to say it simply, the cross is the promise that God in Jesus Christ has taken the burden of your performance upon himself. And that the way he chooses to relate to you is through his love, is through his grace. And experiencing that is only really, the only thing to experience that, and the only thing to have that is not your performance anymore. Christ did that. It's faith. It's leaning in with your need. Um, as we kind of close, the reason Paul was so frustrated with these false teachers, these legalists, as we will call them, was because a legalist, a person that loves rule following and being better than other people, their ultimate goal is that they want superiority. A person that loves rules loves that other people don't follow rules. And that was the problem in this community. That these Jews came in and said, we have it together, you don't, and we're superior. But what Paul is saying, if you look at the end of verse 14, that what Christ came to do was ultimately bring Gentiles into God's family. What he's saying by that is that if God relates to us according to his grace, that means there's not a superior class of people. That there's not people that are better than each other. What Christ is saying from the first believer to the last believer, we all have the opportunity to have God's favor and his smile regardless of our record of performance because what God chooses to do in love is to relate to us according to his son's performance. And y'all, I know that sounds like pie in the sky stuff, but do you understand what that means? We keep talking about it, but like, You are free from the burden of having to put on a show, put on a front. What God says is that your biggest need, the desire for his presence, his person in your life, that's been fulfilled. It's been taken care of. And so you can go out into this world, you can go out into this campus and actually relate to it according to joy. The joyful response of being loved and known by God and your faith resting in that. So don't get off the gospel of grace. Don't get off the back of the gospel of grace. It is our only hope. It is our only peace. I'll end with this quote, um, old Puritan Richard Sibbs. You sound so smart when you quote a Puritan. So I want to end with this. Um, God knows that we have nothing of ourselves. Therefore, in grace, he requires no more than what he gives, but gives what he requires and accepts what he gives. God requires no more than he gives. He gives what he requires and accepts what he gives. That's the gospel. That what God requires is righteousness and Jesus became that righteousness for you. And he accepts Jesus's perfect righteous performance and he accepts you on that basis. There's freedom in that. And that's the invitation to take hold of that by faith tonight. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us in Jesus. We thank you that it is our only hope. It is our only peace. Would you let the gospel speak a better word into our hearts than that nagging sense of condemnation and that nagging sense of shame that always tells us it's all on us? Do this for the students who are feeling exhausted. Do this for the students who are feeling prideful. Do this for me because we need your grace. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Y'all can stand for the last song.